Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Live with Larry Hamstrings, welcome to Resolve Riffs. Hey, gentlemen, thanks for having me. What a great Thanks handle that is. Yeah. Larry Larry Hammers. I like that. I didn't put that together. It is so total should... totally false advertising. My my lifts are very pedestrian if they're even that. Are you kidding from a guy from a guy with your physique and age? <laughs> spectacular. Taken out of that. I, I don't know if you just insulted me or made me feel better. <laughs> well, it depends. Do you like being unassuming or Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Lawrence Hamptel, everyone, by the way, those who may not know him, that's not, not Larry Hammerstrings. But uh, welcome to another edition of The Riffs. I'm having a uh, Armagnac today. Cheers, gentlemen. I'll cheers in the middle. Cheers. Just remember that uh, anything you hear on this particular thing is not any advice whatsoever at all. And Adam people. is frozen. Honestly. Oh, look at that. He's all frozen up. At, Perfect. At a, at a pretty good uh, uh Pose, I would mm. say. <laughs> Let's just gloss over that and uh, maybe yeah. hit the disclaimer before we jump right in. <laughs> I love it. I'm sure he'll join us at some point. He's It's happy hour, so he's probably just gone to the bathroom for a moment. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Larry, why don't you just sort of, for those who may not be familiar with you or Fortune, why don't you give them sort of your career arc um and your interests and some of the sort of you know general stuff we'll jump into some some of the uh, details as we go yeah so i'm a financial advisor here in overland park kansas just in the suburbs of kansas city on the kansas side we've got uh, a kind of a small boutique ria with a couple of advisors and we manage north of about 200 million in, in aum and 
I started in the industry in 2002 uh, when I was still in college, kind of just building spreadsheets and models for a couple of advisors. And once I graduated, I stuck around, got my Series 7, those sorts of things around 2005, started managing uh, client money and kind of moving up through the ranks. And uh, we started the RIA in 2008 after we left a broker dealer and and uh, just kind of kept a core book of business and grew that from there and and uh, spend my time managing mostly retirement money uh, for high net worth individuals and and uh, managing retirement cash flow. So, you know, most of what I do has a little bit more of a conservative bent and, and that kind of thing. And, and uh, yeah, you know, I do a little bit of research on the side, the on the blog, on the company website and just try to express my views there and help other people with their research and help clients understand the markets and um, fairly active on Twitter, sharing ideas and so forth with you guys, for example. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that it's going to be almost 20 years next year. So, you know, it's, I'm getting to be an old man in this industry. Yeah. Got a few scars. You wouldn't be able to tell from your, um, from your squatting though. I I think we should just, we should just get the whole lifting conversation out of the way first. What do you think? I mean, you and yeah, Mike clearly share this passion. What? How did you get into that? And what's your what's your focus there? Well, you know, it's I, I had a friend who was a competitive power lifter and, and actually, a, I think, a world champion strongman for his age group, uh, Dave Kraft here in Kansas City. And uh, he's a he kind of got me interested around 2010 and, and he always had this phrase that cracked me up, which is because he always was complaining that people would just do bench press. And he said, they've got it all backwards. You can't fire a cannon out of a canoe. So you got to work on your core and your legs and stuff. And so he got me interested in it. And I always had very moderate goals, you know, like 300 pound squat, 400 deadlift and got into that and, and just thought it was something that you could train yourself for and the discipline. And it has a little bit of a carryover to investing, right? You know, you have a process you have to follow and, and, um, the, the actual lift takes just a few seconds, but it's all those things that lead up to it. That is really what matters. And it's, it's a similar process with distance running or any other endeavor. And, and so that plus the camaraderie of the gym, you know, you, I've made most of my current really good friends at the gym. You have this common interest of discipline and getting up at early in the morning. Uh, it's all goals. You support each other um, and, and you follow the process and, and study it all. And it's just, I don't know, I, I find it um a way to exercise and to stay strong and healthy. And of course, as you get older, uh, especially sitting at a desk, most of the time, you spend a lot of time losing muscle mass if you don't do anything. And so I thought, well, what the hell, you know, you've got something that's fun. It's healthy. It, what's, what's the downside to it? You know, so it's, it's a, well, you're going to get massive, huge, swole as the gold. Baby. <laughs> It's a downside, you know. I mean, yeah. if you talk, to, you talk to the ladies, it's like, oh, I can't get big and strong. I'm like, you don't have the testosterone to get that big. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. If you ask my <laughs> wife, she should be like, why are you working out? You're already married. I was like, yeah. well, <laughs> I trust me, nobody, nobody tries to talk to me at the gym because of my lifts. 
So Beautiful. the the community online really reinforces the lifting too, right? I mean, I know I I see you and 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 Mike. Sometimes you post some lifting stuff and and Corey, but like there's a whole community that I'm sure is peripheral to and overlaps to some degree with some of the FinTwit community that we all kind of share. But there's that whole other dimension of that social reinforcement right how, how do you how have you found that over the years is that really useful and helpful you know it, it's funny because i just i never i just thought one day i got a wild hair and i thought i would post a video of me doing something stupid like a front squat set of 20 and uh i ended up having a pretty bad injury as a result of that i pinched a nerve in my neck and got these really bad headaches that had to be deep tissue massaged out so that was a bad idea but the video kind of got this thing where people actually it sparks some interest and uh, people would send me messages and say hey you know I like to lift what do you recommend blah 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 and actually met a couple of people who were followers of me but had never previously reached out maybe they were just kind of following but not interacting and uh, they got really into it and a lot of them helped me with my programming and and helping me approach it in a in a better way because at that point I was kind of getting back into it you know after some years off and and so yeah that just sort of was a spontaneous thing and then as far as i knew other people had that interest and i guess because they saw me talking about it well then they were more willing to open up about it so yeah i don't i'm not going to claim credit for sparking all of that but that seems like that's how it developed and then it just went from there well so. it's deteriorated into now just Corey oiling up and and doing um <laughs> squats and and push-ups and and burpees and stuff online. And, and then now ever since he started posting, everyone else has stopped. I don't know if there's a causality there, but it, you know, well, you will, you will never find me posting a shirtless video because nobody will be able to tell the difference since all my t-shirts are white and I'm very white. So, you know, that's my but, one promise to the community. It's kind of interesting. It's a, it's a community within a community. There's a lot of parallels there at the gym and then how that translates into the, the FinTwit community. I also think there's a lot of parallels because when you think about your investment thesis and approach, you've taken a very different uh, tact or angle on a number of different items in the way you've approached uh, the opportunities that you see in the investment landscape. And I always liken that to the difference between going to the gym or being a gym rat and powerlifting or, right. Um, right. These are very sort of niche areas, uh, whether you're, I mean, CrossFit, powerlifting, Olympic lifting, there's all the different types of lifts and they actually require quite variant techniques in order to be successful or even not even being successful and successfully lift appropriately and not get hurt. Exactly. So everyone is, everyone's competing against their own potential. So this is not a com competition of weights between people, but yourself against your own potential. Right. And, and so you get into these very niche areas and they have very specific things that you should be doing in order to achieve success in those areas. And it, to me that, that sort of layers well into the investing world and, you know, and the things that you need to do that aren't typically done. Everyone skips leg day as an example. I don't miss leg day. Right. 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 <laughs> you squat and you squat and you squat and uh, and that's done first and you don't do anything else. So that's done. As you said, you can't fire a cannon out of a canoe. Um, so it, it's just really interesting the sort of the persistence, the perseverance, the discipline, 
the process orientation directly related to an objective function, but has to be fairly clearly understood in order for you to judge success. Right. So if you were to think about going in and I'm going to go deadlift today and you've never deadlifted before, I think you and I would probably say, wait, hold on. <laughs> There's a lot to do between now and, and a good deadlift without hurting yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so how else do you see any other similarities or what are, are the other things that you, um, I think, you know, we sit in this weird space, both the investing approach we take is different. The lifting approach we take is different. Anything else you see there that's... Well, I, I would say there's a couple of interesting things too, because you brought up the, the um, you know, it's an individual endeavor and you're not really competing. With, I mean, you are competing with other people if you're actually in a competition, but, you know, for the most part, you're competing against yourself. And one thing I've noticed with the uh, finance Twitter community is theoretically we're all competing for AUM, right? But we also help each other out with uh, investment ideas, research, and things like that. So it's very um, collegial in, in that respect. And the same thing with with lifting. You know, I think people uh, inherently want to belong to a team, if that makes sense. And so the group of guys that I work out with, we consider ourselves the sort of team in the sense that we help each other out, we spot each other, you know, these sorts of things. And, and um I think that as a community, obviously, you become much stronger as a group than you would be individually, and you become a better lifter when you open yourself up to the feedback from other people and your peers and what you did wrong and those sorts of things. And of course, the same thing is true with investing. When you open yourself up, here are my ideas. Um, You know, uh, Adam's a good example. Years ago, you know, kicking ideas uh, off of him, you know, as far as like, analysis and and what what can be a better way to approach these sorts of things and everybody gets better together you know so i I guess that would be maybe the best uh, benefit um from both things from my perspective yeah and i would also add that go ahead sorry yeah and i would i would add that um where you know fitness as mike sort of mentioned but it was glossed over a little bit i just want to emphasize it's very much a personal endeavor. You have your own personal goals, right? And your goals oftentimes are not, I want to, I want to beat this, this other guy or this other group, right? It's like, I want to improve or I want to, I want to achieve this very specific objective for myself. Mapping to investing so many, so much of the time retirees or investors, they think that they're competing against the benchmark, when in reality, right. what they're doing is they're is is they're they're striving to meet a very personal objective, right? They're trying to hit their financial objectives, and what happens with the benchmark is largely irrelevant. It's kind of like going to the gym and thinking you're competing against the random person that happens to line up next to you at the rack, right? And um, that's just not it at all, right? So, so the other thing is, which is a contrast, um, and I may be this is the way I perceive it. This may be I may be misperceiving this. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, yep. did we lose him? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> He's on such a great roll, too. I love it. Uh, yeah, I was really interested what where he was going with that. And okay, where Adam, you get Adam, to, right? Whereas I think in... You. Adam, we lost you. Um, you cut, cut out for a second Adam. there. With investing, there often is not nearly that same cause effect relationship. There's a lot of randomness in it, and there's way less randomness in it. And 
Did I get cut off? I, I, I just kept talking. I saw myself freeze and then I kept talking. So I don't know okay. how much no. you got. Could you hear us? Can you hear us? No. Well, I hear you now, but I, I didn't before. <laughs> so now, well, I was just so going to say. Take two from individual goals for personal yeah, fitness just and like, finance. <laughs> just, just the second piece was in, in investing, there's a very large stochastic component. So much of it is also due to luck. Whereas I think in the gym, you have a lot more control over the outcomes, right? Like there's different people will progress at the, at different rates, but if you put in the time and the discipline, then um, you you're gonna get eventually to close to the result you want. Whereas in investing, there's absolutely no guarantee. You could put in the right discipline and and not get anywhere close to your objectives, right? So so that's something to to note. Yeah. And I was just saying, you know, it's kind of like there are some people who are born into wealth and, and some people who are genetic freaks that have, you know, are able to deadlift 600 pounds because of their leverage with long arms and so forth. And those kinds of things or people who bench press with a uh, short arms and a, a big chest and just don't have that far to push the bar. But you're right. Broadly speaking, you can, you can achieve a lot of the very, um, accessible goals, so to speak, if you put in the time and, and follow the process. And to your point about people competing with random guys at the gym, it's it's sort of funny when when people make mistakes investing, it's when their friends maybe got lucky with some trade or something, and then they're tempted to try to play catch up and, and deviate from their process. Well, you see somebody bench pressing uh, you know, a hundred kilos and then you think you can do it. And then all of a sudden you've blown out your shoulder. So, you yeah, know, the downside, a- the downside aspect to both lifting and investing is that if you stick to the discipline and you stick to your process and you don't get carried away with trying to compete just because your neighbor is doing something, you'll avoid the hernia or the 30% drawdown, right? Whereas on the upside of things, yeah, the stochastic nature of markets means that you can't really see the direct linear uh, uh, result of the uh, work put in. Well, the yeah. interesting thing about lifting too is it's it's sort of inversely asymptotic, right? The, so if you take a good investment process, you get the effect of compounding and your process drives that compounding sort of hockey stick-like behavior over time. Whereas lifting, if you continue, you do get, you know, as a beginning lifter, you get sort of a rapid appreciation and then you start to get to both age as well as the physical limits of your physiology start to really impede progress. Like you have to work four years to add five, 10, 15 pounds to a max effort. And, and so the, it really drives home the persistence aspect of it. And then there are certain things that you might want to try or do um, that, uh, that can assist you. So, so there's techniques, mm-hmm. uh, I'd almost look at them as almost technological ad- advantages or go back to the, what was it? The Flawsbury flop, Flounsbury flop, right. And, and high jump, right. Where you, you moved away from one type of jump to another, which totally obliterated all the previous records. Right. And you've seen that, you know, West side barbell has basically everyone there deadlifts a thousand pounds and they've got myriad <laughs> records and all that. Right. And you can say, well, you know, um, Louis has said that he's on record as saying, well, yeah, if you want to be strong, you have to use steroids, but so is everybody else that that gym is competing with. And so why do they have all the world records? And it's because of some of the really unique and novel ways that they've approached training. 
right. and some of the machines that they've used and some of the things that they do that nobody else does. And it's those tweaks in approach and technology that provide for massive success or better success, I would say. And, and I would draw that parallel back to investing as well. You can't expect to do the same thing as everybody else does and have results that are significantly different from everybody right. else. Yeah, and it's true. Adam, the point you make about um, about the whole, the whole benchmark benchmarking is a disease in this industry, in my mind. Um, it, it is, you know, I think Robin Diamante, the CIO at Raytheon, is has very articulately laid out for their pension plan how the S and P five hundred is not their benchmark. If the S and P five hundred goes down twenty eight and you deliver me minus twenty seven, that's not success for our pension. Uh, 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 pensionees or pensioners and in, in our program. It's not success. Yet our industry goes and defines success vis-a-vis a benchmark in order to keep some sort of scorecard. Um, and and so anyway, any thoughts on that, uh, Hammer? And and then you're and then and then maybe weave that into how you've how you've kind of taken the approach that you've taken, that the real difference that you're uh, bringing to the table. And I would really be interested in the history of that. How, how the hell did you come to that? Well, I would just say to go back to Adam's point, I wanted to get in a good quote for people who aren't familiar with it, which is uh, Jim Rohn. I think he it was he who said that you have only one choice in life and it's choosing between the pain of discipline and the pain of regret. And that's definitely applicable to lifting Beauty. and investing. But um, yeah, I mean, when I look at a, a client portfolio, you want to be aware of what the markets are doing and you do sort of have to justify your your fees and everything else as far as the performance goes. But ultimately, success is defined by, for example, did I run out of money before I died or something simple like that? You know, have I met my financial objectives? And of course, that's the the ultimate arbiter of success or failure for for the client. Um, and some people don't think that, but then they, they'll end up, you know, probably not being a good client and that's just kind of how it goes. But, um, I, I guess my whole philosophy was, was certainly shaped by the 2007, 2009 downturn. And, and, uh, we probably went into that unprepared as far as the exposure to, to different industries and and maybe misunderstanding the nature of that kind of bull market cycle leading up to that and and uh, how the system was you know sort of a house of cards as far as the debt loads and so forth and so coming out of that experience it was kind of like we're thankful to survive it as we did and and pretty well intact and and uh, people recovered and but we're kind of thinking, what's a better way to approach this to, to, to have client portfolios that are going to be diversified, that are going to participate in, in the upside of the markets, but try to wash out a little bit of the volatility? What are business models that, that we can invest in that will prove durable and, and uh, thick and thin? And so... I sort of developed that philosophy of of um, trying to avoid strikeouts and not necessarily swing for the fences and just try to be a <clears throat> sort of a minimum volatility investor, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, most of my clients they they care more about protecting against the downside than hitting 
um, you know, a grand slam, so to speak. So, yeah, I think everybody was was shaped by the 2007-2009 crash and seeing, you know, just the ridiculous volatility. And so that's really when I kind of started to frame my opinions that I still hold today and, and they, for better or worse. So Corey, I'd like to dig a little bit into your uh, uh, investment process and how you think about specifically this uh, uh, question of diversification, uh, maybe from an asset allocation perspective, how, how you think about portfolio construction. And obviously, we didn't give the disclaimer earlier on. None of this is investment advice, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into how you think about that process from an asset allocation and then maybe get into the uh, sector specific uh, that I know you have a lot to, to say on. Yeah, well, uh, for the most part, it, it really kind of depends on the client. So keep in mind that our particular clientele or are fairly um, simple is not the right word, but but they're really interested in in reducing complexity. So we're going to end up with um, what the client wants as far as risk tolerance and and what they're willing to stomach there, what their immediate cash flow needs are, those sorts of things, and you end up with a balanced portfolio of cash and bonds and stocks. I don't do too much with alternatives currently because I, I, I haven't quite figured out how to implement that into portfolios. It's something I'm interested in learning more about and maybe, you know, you guys can, can help me frame that later. But um, on the equity side, for example, we try to be sector neutral. So we don't try to take big bets one way or another there versus our, our benchmark and, and on the fixed income side, it's really kind of depending on what we think interest rates will do and, and um, try not to take big bets on duration one way or another. So we're, we're really just trying to keep things simple and, and keep the fees to an ultimate uh, as low as possible, reduce any frictions, uh, tax efficiency, so it's I wouldn't say that it's overly complex, but we're we're really looking for kind of the low hanging fruit as far as what we see and some inefficiencies there. So um, you if I don't know if, whether you're the progenitor of this concept or just a, a uh, an exponent of it, but Corey was mentioning that that you talk a lot about your barbell portfolio where the barbell is kind of a combination of momentum and low or minval how, how did you come to that idea and and where do you sort of stand on it now you how know do you i it? i mean if you look back historically you you have some things that um from an industry standpoint like let's say consumer staples they tend to not have super cycles right you don't ever hear about a you hear about the tech bubble, but you don't hear about the consumer staples bubble, though I guess you could argue the nifty 50 might be one of those rare incidents. And and so just kind of observing the history of markets, I got to thinking, you know, there were such extremes in the late 90s, and a lot of it was sector driven. We had some things that fundamentally were completely left behind, some things that were, despite no fundamentals, went through the roof. And so I got to thinking, what if you were to kind of pair those things? And, and obviously, I, I kind of think that low vol and momentum sort of track consumer staples and technology. Historically, those have been kind of the um, a, a similar bet to make. 
And I realized when I was building portfolios back before I understood anything about quantitative analysis <laughs> that I ended up with a lot of consumer staples and technology stocks in my, in my single name portfolios. And that's just where the analysis led me. And so I kind of arrived at it by accident, which is, you know, uh, not maybe a, a brave thing to admit. I'd like to say <laughs> that it was some kind of smart analysis, but it was really just an accident. And I thought, well, you can, and keep in mind that a lot of these ETFs that are popular today were not available, you know, 10, 15 years ago. You know, the maybe the ideas were around, but there wasn't really any easy way to implement them. And so I thought, well, that's actually what I've been doing is you're, you're pairing something that periodically will go to extremes with something that is almost, you know, never at extreme by definition. And so how would that sort of concept work? And uh, you can make it a lot of different ways, uh, momentum and menvol, or if you wanted to be on a, on a sector basis, technology and consumer staples, or even have a basket of either one. But if you look at, for example, the technology sector, it, you kind of have the illusion of winner-take-all phenomenon with Apple and Microsoft and these mega cap companies that just keep growing and growing and really nothing can stop them, whereas consumer staples, you, you see that um, they're almost perennially um, undervalued, same, seemingly relative to their long-term fundamentals. It seems like every, every day there's another article about how these companies are going to get destroyed by technology and so forth, and they end up um, still sticking around and doing fine. So yeah, the barbell concept I think works, but they're the sort of what has hampered it recently, especially with the pandemic, is that the inopportune rebalancing. I mean, you can have low volatility or menvol actually be a momentum at some point. And then, of course, you have overlap. And so that's a deficiency in the way that those portfolios are constructed. Um, but, you know, that kind of lends itself to the sector-based approach because, you know, those those bets are never going to change. There's no real rebalancing taking place there with the overlap. But, yeah, I, I think the concept has merit. Um, I tend to I, – I don't know if this is correct since I'm not a, a quant uh, expert – but I, I tend to see value as kind of a fundamentally driven factor. Um, as I guess it could be behavioral in some ways too, but momentum and, and menvol I see as primarily behavioral driven. And so I, I think that those two should have longer term, uh, better opportunities for pairing in a, in a barbell approach. But um, I, I wouldn't say that I've exhausted my research on that idea. And do you go down both fundamental and sort of technical slash flow analysis or are, are both those uh, uh, types of analysis part of your consideration as you go about these analyses? I, I don't do it on my own, but I certainly you know pay attention to it when others present the data. Um, to me, it's, it's not something the, that I've ever figured out how to implement as far as my approach goes, but I'm, I'm always open to see how it could be included. And how I how I can refine the idea to make it uh, better, and that I mean it even goes as far as rebalancing with a barbell approach. I mean, who's to say in the in the past? Um, I, I typically have have studied it based on an annual rebound. Maybe it's better on a monthly or quarterly. I don't know. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to to skin the cat, so to speak. 
So I, I, I'm open to ways to refine the idea, uh, but I haven't figured out the perfect way to implement it for sure. Well, look, the crowd wants to know, what is it with this obsession with Philip Morris? <laughs> well, I would, I would also add to that. How, how did you, so you've got this barbell approach and one of the, a couple of the items in the barbell approach are defense stocks and tobacco stocks or Philip Morris. How, how did you get there? And, and then how do you, how do you actually manifest that? Well, first of all, um, the Apple Philip Morris barbell is completely a creation of Corey. It has nothing to do with uh, anything that I've ever done. But my uh, un- sort of unfortunate uh, obsession with Philip Morris, as I, as I joke about, actually, it's just became a fascinating idea that a company that, or a sector, really, I mean, uh, Philip Morris isn't the only successful tobacco company, but I, I probably read too much David Dreamin growing up. The idea of a contrarian investing approach really appealed to me. The idea that, that this uh, industry could continue to print money um, for decades after it became regulated and after the products became known to be harmful and was losing consumers every year. It was just sort of uh, fascinating that, that this was possible because you think as investors, we have to find out where's the growth. And then, of course, you feel like uh, growth is a sort of paradoxically, uh, it's, a, it's a trap because it attracts competition. And you have to understand, of course, too, what makes a good industry is also, I mean, a, a stock can be cheap, <clears throat> excuse me, but if, the, if those profits aren't protected by some kind of barrier to entry, then those, prof- those future profits won't be around. So what is unique about the tobacco industry that has made it I, I believe still to this day, uh, if not the best, one of the best performing industries over time, unlike any other industry. And it turns out, I think, I mean, it's the regulators by, to some degree, have cemented market share for the incumbents. They pre- made it virtually impossible to start a new tobacco company. We saw with the vaping thing a couple of years ago how difficult it is to compete in the marketplace with what is, I, th- I think, marketed as a reduced-risk product. Um, you have the government, which relies heavily on, on excise tax for revenues. I mean, there's a whole lot of different things that make it a, something that's simple, like a cigarette, makes it a fascinating industry. And, of course, they're able to generate a ton of cash from uh, you know something that's been around forever. And it's, I think, you know, it's, it's not... If I'm not mistaken, there's never been a negative 10-year return over almost 100 years of industry returns in tobacco. And there are not too many industries that can say the same. And the other thing is it's almost always uh, moderately valued. You know, it's very rarely excessively valued. And kind of like defense stocks, you know, the people hate them maybe because of uh, ethics or whatever, but that also sort of dampens the expectations. And so if you never trade at a ridiculous valuation, you're not really cannibalizing future returns. And I'm, that feeds into my process because as somebody who manages retirement money, I want the consistency of those returns year after year versus, you know, sort of all over the place where you'll have a big return one year and, and uh, you know, a negative return the next year. 
so yeah, it, it, this, those sorts of things just sort of feed my interest. How do you how think do you, about the, sorry, Mike, I was just going to say, ask, how do you think about the uh, sort of secular negative trend of <laughs> anti-tobacco, uh, anti-smoking versus the regulatory moat that you've described? And at some point that value uh, uh, opportunity becoming something of a value trap as, as uh, habits change and as, you know, society evolves towards a, a perhaps a, an even more uh, uh, negative perception of smoking. And at one point, you might have this tipping point against uh, uh, tobacco and how that might affect tobacco stocks. Yeah, well, I, I think tobacco is part of it, but I think it's really nicotine. And so we're trying to figure out, is nicotine going to go away with, with a decline in tobacco use or is nicotine going to stick around? And, and I think the, the, the answer is probably that nicotine is going to be around for a long time. And the tobacco companies know that. They know that they're in secular decline, but they're also the best positioned, arguably, to capture that future nicotine pool, whether it's through vaping or uh, lozenges. You know, uh, there's a lot of things going on in, in the marketplace that are presumably safer than smoking and uh, still give you the the sort of the habit that people enjoy from smoking, uh, but uh, theoretically less health risk. And so I'm not sure that that, uh, that stuff is going away anytime soon. And the regulators, their role in all this is that they sort of give the tobacco companies time to transition, you know, because they make it so difficult whether they're conscious of this or not, they make it so difficult for people to come in and compete in the space. And you can't really duplicate the distribution and all the, the networks and so forth that the incumbent companies have. So to me, it, it seems like people underestimate the potential there for future nicotine consumption as well as underestimating the role that these incumbents are going to play in capturing that future nicotine consumption and how they can do that through their portfolio of reduced risk products as they transition away from, you know, purely combustible tobacco use. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, uh, I wonder if the premise that you're setting actually is true, Richard, with the, from, from the perspective of is the pool of profit coming from nicotine shrinking? I would argue that with vape and jewel, um, that that pool is actually maybe not contracting is actually expanding and you have an industry which falls into our peculiar ESG uh, funnel, and and thus it 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 gets under arbitraged, and thus the returns uh, remain there. Brian Moriarty, Brian Moriarty from Morningstar mentions that the municipal bonds uh, backed by tobacco settlements are the, among the best performance performers in the muni market, and and that's telling you something. I mean that that is telling you that. There are preferences, uh, investor preferences out there that are not really economically uh, motivated, which leaves the opportunity for an increased rate of return on that sector because it just has less capital chasing it. Right. Um, I, you I have a good story there, right? Well, yeah, and 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 the, I mean this this industry has been under prosecution for decades, probably the last three or three decades minimum. Like it's pretty significant. Um, and, and I remember back in 1999 and 2000, 
Kelpers had said we're not going to own any of any of the tobacco stocks. Philip Morris had a 10%, 11% dividend yield. And I went to clients and I said, this is this is an industry where you know people aren't going to stop. They can tax it more and there's going to be settlements. And um, but the industry is too large, too popular, too strong. And the the nicotine habits that voters have is also too strong. And so I said, well, everyone hates it. There's an imbalance in supply and demand of sellers and buyers. You should own some. One of the best trades that that those who took it would <laughs> would take it. And you walked around your your uh, um, uh, group of colleagues and say, what do you think of this thing? And everyone was like, are you out of your mind? And so part of it, again, this is like leg day. No one wants to do leg day, but everyone wants to have huge quads. <laughs> and it, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, and so how... I recall that kind of pushback 20 years ago. And I mean, since then, Philip Morris, I think, has outperformed the S&P 500 by 4x, right? Not, not you know, uh, four basis points, but four times. And um, and so when we think about this industry that's under such duress, it is massively outperformed the market, which includes lots of tech stocks, obviously, lots of fun stuff. But so how do you handle that, Larry, in, in the sense of, do you have a, cl- a group of clients who has a proclivity to be exposed to that and doesn't mind it? Or do you educate them? Or, I mean, each each case is individual. I'm sure if someone says, I don't want that, you say, fine. But h- how do you sculpt and educate around that? Well, it's kind of a funny thing. I, I like to joke. I joked with somebody else that ESG or socially responsible or, or what people find objectionable <laughs> sort of varies by region, right? So I'm in the Midwest with a lot of probably right of center, blue collar people. And so the things that they might find objectionable might be, you know, the Silicon Valley and tech stocks, you know, uh, but it, I'm, I'm joking, of course, but the, the people here, they more or less care what's going to make them money and what's going to help them accomplish their objectives. And of course, if some people object to it, that's fine. We'll, we'll figure out a way around it. Uh, it's not a deal breaker by any means, but yeah, our, my question is always, how far do you take it? And I think this is something Warren Buffett said. Uh, are you going to own Walmart, which sells tobacco products, or Costco? Uh, to my knowledge, they still sell tobacco products. Are you going to uh, stop paying your taxes to the municipality because they rely heavily on excise taxes to fund their operations? I mean, the you can take it to an extreme and. The other issue is if we think that they're by not owning these stocks, we're going to drive up their cost of capital. To me, that's a little bit uh, misguided because they generate so much cash. They are literally giving money back to you. They don't need your money per se. You're not loaning them money like a, like owning the bond or being the bank or whatever. So I just say, you know, you can own the stock and take the dividends or the capital gains, whatever, and, and use it for your own purposes. But that's just one way to frame it. Uh, so I think people have a kind of a misunderstanding of, of the role shareholders play and, and how they react. They're actually buying it on the secondary market versus directly from the company. They're not necessarily giving them capital. But yeah, I mean, we just walk them through it. And, and if they have an issue, that's fine. It's Our goal is to educate and help them make an informed choice. But um, yeah, but for the most part, I think people in my industry, my clients, they're just more interested in what's going to help them accomplish their goals. And they care less about how that's done. 
it's a great behavioral edge. Right? I mean, this is definitionally doing something different and achieving results that are different than your peers. And in this case, it aligns beautifully with what their goals are versus what the index might be, what, what an index might be, sort of the personality, the cash flow, the types of business. It, it's kind of a very interesting edge that you've uh, sussed out. Yeah, and I think it was Richard maybe who mentioned the idea of how do you avoid a, a value trap in the space, and that's a good question. And I would argue, um, you know, you, you have these these periods when fundamentals improve and the stock actually underperforms the business. And I would argue that's what's gone on with tobacco, where uh, I think in, in Altria, the domestic Philip Morris um, free cash flow per share has compounded to 10% a year over the last 10 years. Uh, I put out a chart on Twitter today that if you combine Philip Morris International and Altria's free cash flow, uh, it dwarfs, say, Nestle and Coca-Cola and Pepsi over the same period. So if you pay attention to the fundamentals and you understand that the stock is underperforming because it's multiple compression, you know, the business is under outperforming the stock, well, then, okay, you can say, is this a value trap or am I just going to have to be patient? Um, whereas, you know, the broader market has gotten, uh, has outperformed basically by getting more expensive well, to a Apple. large degree. Yeah, since we're, since we're talking about these two, throw, throw in Apple. Yeah, around. Apple's valuation has doubled um, over the last uh, 18, 24 months, um, basically based on, I guess, anticipation for uh, transitioning to a services company, whereas I think it's 80% hardware still. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have to be patient with that and you have to pay attention to what you own. And, and of course, nothing's written in stone, but... You know, you see this week, too, with volatility related to some regulatory proposals. And that stuff kind of comes with the territory. And a lot of people who might own the stock for the dividend yield, for example, they, they probably are not as familiar with how slowly things work in Washington with the FDA and all these sorts of things. So it's it's a unique group of people who are really committed to understanding the industry and paying attention. And I like to say that every industry is cyclical. But the nature of the cycle is different. And in tobacco, the cyclical nature is, um, seems entirely regulatory. I mean, you have a product that is recession-resistant, demand and price inelastic for the most part, but you have multiple compression or expansion based on perception of regulatory fears. And I think, uh, you know, Howard Mark cited this stat in the late 90s, and that's just kind of mind-blowing, so I'll repeat it. I think Philip Morris and this was before they split into two different companies, was the only company that managed 15% profit growth every year over, I think it was like every 10-year period from 70 to 80 and 80 to 90 and 90 to 2000, but underperformed the market in the 90s by 13% a year because people were worried about the lawsuits that Mike mentioned. So yeah, I mean, it it can be painful to, to hold these things when everybody else is doing better with a lot less heartache. Well, it's, it's shocking how, how similar the sort of that 99, 2000 period is to today as well. Just you, oh, yeah. if you look at Philip Morris versus the market, it's underperforming the market by, I don't know, 100% or something like that. Um, yeah. Which is to say, I think that that's an opportunity. I, I would say that if, if I were, you know, inclined and I might be after this call to buy some tobacco stocks. <laughs> <laughs> My work here is done. Yeah, I, I'm in. <laughs> 
I remember my signing off. Trade, Thanks for dude. listening. I'm in. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, What's man, the I... yield on it at the moment? Uh, well, at one point, I think it. Well, let me see. It's uh, oh, uh, it's got to be close to seven or eight percent. I think trading at ten times earnings. So, dude, get me yeah. long. Yeah, the current environment <laughs> that definitely looks uh, attractive. Well, especially the three years of underperformance since seventeen. The underperformance is is uh, pretty amazing. So great opportunity. Anyway, well, I, I digress. Yeah. I turn over to you guys. I'm curious as to some of the other opportunities uh, uh, that you might be seeing from the externalities that are coming from the ESG uh, push. I mean, the tobacco is an obvious one, which has been lasting for for decades now. You can think about oil and gas and how the the dwindling uh, capex dollars towards exploration and production will probably beget higher valuations for the. Uh, oil and gas companies that stick with it because there's just going to be less competition and, and, and more scarcity, and we're not going to be transitioning into uh, green energy at a snap, right? So, what are some of the other opportunities that you see coming from this uh, uh, pullback of institutional money because of the ESG trend? You know, I I think it's kind of it's interesting because everybody wants to be considered ESG, right? Uh, you can flip through the annual reports for Altria or Northrop Grumman or the defense makers or any any other industry that is sort of not perceived as socially responsible. <laughs> they're definitely making the case that they're ESG and some of the extremes that they 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 sort of take with it are kind of amusing. You you can make the case as I have sort of jokingly that the defense stocks which keep the peace or ESG because they allow everything else to go on and, and, and peace and prosperity. Although people don't necessarily like the idea of owning uh, cluster bomb manufacturers, but you know, it's, it's just something that I, I think is probably going to grow in uh, popularity. It's certainly a force to be reckoned with as far as flows go. Um, the, the evidence is there that every company wants its shares to be considered as ESG acceptable but that doesn't mean that ESG and socially responsible are not necessarily the same thing. And there's probably going to continue to be a, a push on the institutional side to divest from fossil fuels. I can't imagine too many institutions still own tobacco or gun stocks. Um, maybe defense makers are a little bit more acceptable because some of them have crossover with aerospace and they're not necessarily pure defense plays. But I mean, it, it's it's something that we have to be aware of, and and if you're going to try to manage money for institutions, you've got to be aware of those mandates. But again, ESG, to, as I understand it, is a little bit open ended, and and oh, yeah. there's not it's a so universal deep. definition of uh, of what it means, and so you can, if you have that mandate, you can probably be a little creative or flexible with with how you implement it and so i don't face that necessarily in my business just managing individual money but if i were an institutional manager it would certainly be you know something i'd have to deal with on a daily basis are you seeing any um trend so the the i guess the the battlefield is changing to more of a cyber battlefield and uh and there's a lot of big data involved in military thought process now have have you turned your gaze yet to some of the sort of more tech oriented providers of 
uh, defense contracts. Like one that comes to mind is Palantir and their Gotham program. And, you know, they've been operating largely. I mean, that's a company that probably exists because of the initially the U.S. government engaging them and and thinking of cybersecurity at a at a, a, a government level. Are, are you turning your eye to that? Are you seeing much of that yet? Or is that that, that sort of what are your thoughts there? You know, I, I haven't spent a lot of time on that aspect of it. It's definitely a burgeoning part of the defense budget. Um you know, Microsoft, for example, got a big contract recently, I believe, from the Pentagon. Uh, the the pure play defense companies, as as far as I know, are, are not necessarily in that space. I, I guess I spend a little bit more of my time on the traditional uh, airplanes and tanks and, and shipbuilders because I, I just happen to know a little a bit boy, more about – Yeah, exactly. Right. I played with G.I. Joes <laughs> as a kid. I'm- because I had yeah. formative but, years, G.I. Joe's. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's a growing thing. And there's a lot of money that's up for grabs for for these uh, technology companies to compete in that. And again, I, I think the dynamics are largely the same. It, it's going to favor domestic cybersecurity companies. Nobody wants to outsource these national security issues to a foreign company. Um it's probably going to involve the same group of players because of clearance, you know, security clearance issues and things like that. So and the government tends to be sort of socialistic in terms of how they uh, keep these companies involved with periodic rewards of contracts and kind of keep an even playing field. Uh, so I imagine that the same dynamics will play out as they have been with, with uh, big weapons contracts. Uh, as far as doing anything directly with cybersecurity, uh, I have not myself. That doesn't mean I don't have an interest in it. I just haven't found uh, I haven't found the current opportunity set to be as compelling as as what I have traditionally been involved with, uh, and that may be to my detriment. But yeah, I mean it's it's definitely on my radar for sure. Yeah, it's just the battlefield is changing slightly. So the the armaments and the providers of said armaments and defenses are going to change and definitely. It's just yeah. really, uh, I think it's a neat concept. So it's something that occurred to me. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. So, just in this, in on the theme of sort of conservative investing in general, I know it's been discussed um, in certain circles, but I think there's a. There's a general sense, and I think it's reasonable concern that more traditional sort of low vol oriented portfolios, um, maybe those oriented towards staples, are more vulnerable to uh, inflation dynamics. And so I think it, it behooves us to have a little bit of a discussion about different ways of expressing this conservative view, right? So mm-hmm. some of the differences between, say, a low beta or low vol type portfolio versus a minimum variance type portfolio. How, how have you started to think about that and how, how are you positioning portfolios in that context? You know, it's, it's funny that um, you, you mentioned that and I'll bring up a couple of points, which I are going to rely on some research that I, uh, is not my own, but, but third party and, and uh, John fell, who's a good friend of mine at Ash Park. He, in a recent post we did together, he talked about how uh, consumer staples, for example, from an industry standpoint, um, has actually done 
decently well in a in a inflationary environment. I mean, we haven't had that much inflation over the past fifty years, just the seventies and eighties. But because they're able to pass on the cost to consumers and they have pricing power, earnings have grown pretty well in inflationary periods, and and most of the the downside has come from multiple compression. So. I'm not sure that I think that inflation is as big a threat to traditionally low vol industries as people think. They would probably be a bigger threat to, to industries with higher fixed, you know, fixed assets costs and things like that. Um, there is a, I think it was a Bernstein research note I saw that that low vol has tended to do well in inflationary periods, and um, I kind of forget the logic that they laid out. But I think it had to do with the fact that uh, because by nature of the low vol portfolio, you're you're sort of reducing and well, inflation can bring on its own volatility, right? And historically, low vol portfolios have done better because they've declined less, and so they have um, shorter, less severe drawdowns than the broader market, let alone a higher beta portfolio. And, and inflationary periods that can tend to wreak havoc on a on, on those types of portfolios. So low vol tends to do relatively well just because they don't take as many hits. I don't know if you've seen that, Adam, in your research, but I actually think people misunderstand the nature of of, of inflation and and interest rates seems to be a common argument against low vol portfolios, and because they tend to coincide, you know, when, when low vol does better, when interest rates are declining, simply because the overall market tends to get destroyed when interest rates are declining, you know, so they're confusing cause and effect. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's my takeaway from the research I've done on the topic. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an interaction effect, right? Because mm-hmm. you've certainly, um, traditionally people that invest in staples or low vol type strategies are, are often also focused on yield, right? And so mm-hmm. they it tends to be perceived as more bond-like. And in a period of inflation, obviously you're expecting a rise in rates. And just like you'd expect the price of bonds to decline in a rising rate environment, you'd expect the price of um, higher yielding stocks to decline. The other side of that is higher yield means lower duration. And so sure. typically you've got higher duration assets are going to decline more than, than lower duration assets in a in an inflationary environment. Plus, you've got the potential for cost pass-through in a uh, staples-type um, business. So there's definitely a variety of interaction effects. I think one thing that's sometimes missed with Loval is that you do exclude almost all the time more extractive industries. So for example, there's almost there's almost never oil and gas or mining stocks or gold stocks within a low vol portfolio. So, where in the 70s, the biggest gainers by far, and in fact delivered staggeringly strong positive returns in the face of a broader market that declined on average over the uh, over the period in in real terms. Mm-hmm. The extractive sectors, gold, mining, and energies, did spectacularly well over that period. Right. So you're you do have this, you're buttressing some of the effects by holding lower vol assets, but at the same time, you're not holding some of the industries that actually end up doing spectacularly well in in certain types of inflationary environments. And where I wanted to go with this was how, and you and I have chatted about this offline over over the months, but minimum variance portfolios by virtue of the fact that they're really seeking out opportunities for diversification often end up holding 
energy stocks, gold mining stocks, right. extractive uh, companies, because they are different than um, the, the return profile is different than what you observe from more traditional industries. And, and so there's an opportunity to, to maybe extract the same benefit um, as you would from sort of more conservative portfolio orientations um, with a minimum variance type model instead of a low vol type model and get the benefit of also owning, owning some of these extractive industries um, that will benefit from the types of environments we haven't seen with great frequency over the last 40 years, but we may see with greater frequency over the next decade or so. So I'm just wondering how you've sort of balanced that off in, in practical terms in your portfolios. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm definitely um, uh, mostly or exclusively if I'm going to make a factor bet, and I'll put it this way, if I had to bet my life on one factor and live with it, it would be minimum variance. Uh, the data show that you're you're going to have um, just as good, if not superior, absolute returns as well as superior risk-adjusted returns. And, and the reason that you mentioned is you're not necessarily making a big bet or a big industry bet as you would with with some of the the pure factors like uh, value or, or low vol, where you are kind of making absolute bets on on industries. But yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that that because you're you're not oftentimes the people just think of what their portfolios hold, but they sort of ignore what their portfolio is excluding. And if you were trying to be uh, an investor in the 70s without, ex- without holding any natural resources or things like that, you know, you would have had a very rough time of it. So we, and we also tend to extrapolate from the recent past to, to think what we, what's going to happen in the future. And so minimum variance kind of solves for that because you're kind of agnostic in the sense that you're not going to make a, a big bet one way or another, but you're also positioning it to try to wipe out or, or wash out, reduce in, um, some of the volatility in, a, in the benchmark portfolio. Yeah. One, one of the other parallels between today and sort of 98 to 2000 um, was that that was also a period where uh, conservative portfolios, so high quality um Think about the Buffett portfolio even, right? So a really a quality bet, but also minimum variance portfolios really suffered, right? Relative to the cap-weighted markets in, from 98 to 2000. I mean, when you go back to 98, it was, it was really interesting because, of course, small caps plateaued. They sort of peaked in, in right. 97, and they kind of flatlined and kind of trended a little bit lower, even into the, the mid-2000 peak of the cap-weighted indices. Um, and you were sort of observing, maybe not in small cap, obviously small caps had a massive rip over the last um, year or so, but certainly the more diversified minimum variance and conservative portfolios are really suffering on a relative basis today, the same way they did between sort of 97 and 2000. Um, and that may be another sign that we're in that, that last phase of a major speculative rip, and it might be a good time to begin to legging into um, those more conservative type diversity. Yeah, you players. know, you, you you guys are familiar with our friend uh, Pim Van Fleet, and uh, he has a great line. You know that the the uh, I think it was Dave Babulik who likes to say that you have to have some sort of pain associated with any sort of investment approach, and so Pim says that the the pain of low vol investing is watching everybody get rich while you <laughs> while you're sort of lagging behind. 
And I think that's definitely yes. exactly right. Yeah. And that's totally what, what's happening in my opinion is, is a lot of these, um, well, I mean, I've had it said directly to me that, that people are not interested in certain investments because they quote, don't move that fast. And, and so that's a kind of indicative of where we are in the market cycle that, that people don't want to get rich slowly, so to speak, you know, it doesn't have enough juice for them to be interested. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's not fun while you're going through it, but in the long run, those those have tended to be the fat pitches uh, in history. You know, when when people are ignoring quality and and valuation and just kind of going for what's in in style. I would lean very heavily on that theme, absolutely. Um, myself, I also want to I, I want to chat about the your valuation market valuation arguments because I, I think you were sort of the first one. Um, that I observed anyway, anyways, who really um, went emphatically towards the view that measuring broad index level valuations may be missing a lot of the nuance of what's going on beneath the surface. And I'm talking specifically about a lot of people who use sort of CAPE ratio or, you know, market cap to GDP or market cap to peak earnings, you know, which we have tend to lean on in our uh, research historically. But I'm sympathetic to your arguments that the constitution of the sectors of the of the broader market do change pretty dramatically over time. So, for example, in the modern era, U.S. the U.S. market from a cap weighted basis leans very heavily on tech. And tech has right. tend to had ten, tended to have historically higher average valuations um, and higher margins, and so any effort to sort of margin adjust at a at a macro level um, that doesn't account for sector constitution may provide a biased estimate of of how cheap or expensive markets are. Maybe maybe talk a little bit about your adventures in that arena and, and some of your conclusions. Yeah, so uh, just kind of address it one by one. And the market cap to GDP is kind of a, maybe the simplest one to address, which is if you if you look at it in in a vacuum, you're comparing the size of the of the market value of all the publicly traded companies versus the domestic GDP. And I always ask people who, who bring it up, well, what about Switzerland? You know, it's a tiny little country with these huge multinationals and the market cap to GDP is in excess of 200%. Well, of course, the Swiss economy is not big enough to sustain the Nestle's and the Roches and all of these multinationals on its own. So, you know... Would you avoid Swiss stocks because of that? So how does that equate with the U.S. market when you're not even factoring in um, private companies and all these sorts of things? And, of course, we know that, what, 40% of of S&P profits come from abroad. So really, is the denominator still accurate in that sense? So to me, that's – I look – I think evaluation is is a toolbox, and you have all these different tools, and they should all sort of tell the same thing to get the the signal that you're looking for, right? You know, if you have one that's slightly off, you should probably ignore it. But I I just think market cap to GDP is probably the least effective of all of those different metrics. CAPE ratio 
is uh, definitely historically proven to be useful, although it hasn't proven to be as useful in recent times. I have some sympathy for the new studies on the cyclically adjusted total yield, which takes into account buybacks, which have come in favor. And, and uh, you know, certainly these corporations generate a lot more cash than they have in the past, and they've been returning a ton of it to shareholders. And I think over the past 30 or 40 years, you know, reverse engineering it, that has proven to be a, a better tool than the CAPE ratio has. Uh, but one thing that, that people tend to do that I, I think is misguided is we look at valuations in a vacuum and without any context. And we know historically there's a strong inverse relationship between the PE ratio or it's inverse, the earnings yield, and inflation. So if we think of stocks is what they are, which are kind of the present value of future assessed cash flows, you know, what we think those are going to be. Uh, in an inflationary period, you're probably not going to pay as much. And, and to some, that doesn't make sense, right? Because we think of companies as real assets and, you know, theoretically investors shouldn't care about inflation because those costs will be passed on to consumers and so forth. But behaviorally, investors are averse to having a lot of inflation and, and they think their future dollars or those future earning streams are going to be worth less. So they will depress the multiple and, and command a, a higher expected return in that case. So comparing, say, the, a CAPE ratio or a PE multiple from the 70s with one in the 2000 teens or 20s when inflation is virtually nil seems to me uh, a little misguided. You have to kind of figure out what's the appropriate uh, anchor point, you know, for your valuation framing, if that makes sense. Um, but beyond that, I think index level data is also a little bit, um, you, you know, especially when you're comparing across geographies. You know, if you have uh, a lot of foreign markets, which are largely cyclical, so you're going to end up with a lot of financials and, and things like that, energy materials. You're going to pay a lower multiple for cyclical industries than you would for those that are in kind of secular growth mode, uh, something that's staple, uh, sorry, stable like staples or healthcare or technology. And of course, even within technology, you have cyclical parts like semiconductors and then kind of stable secular growers like software. So really, you're trying to figure out what's the apples to apples comparison here, whether it's across geographies or across historical eras to get a sense of whether or not you're overpaying for anything. And I guess my takeaway as something that has sort of worked for me as far as, um, and I never try to make big bets, but there will be periods when I think the market is expensive and I'll, I'll reduce positioning, you know, kind of raise cash, especially maybe be a little more aggressive with rebalancing. And I actually think forward price to earnings is a very useful tool, which is maybe a, a controversial topic to to raise. But I mean, there will be periods where it doesn't work as well. I mean, last spring during the pandemic, when nobody knew what to expect, it wouldn't have been very useful. But historically speaking, you know, it kind of washes out the noise that trailing PE can have, for example, with the uh, financial crisis when PEs went to 100 and above. So <clears throat> to me, if I had to choose, I would probably go with, with forward PE as, as kind of my go-to metric. But I always try to look at it in the context of inflation and, and see where we are. And of course, 
uh, market composition. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing. It's, it's, it's far less uh, simple than, than maybe people might think. Yeah, I mean, no, specifically that's a, that's a on, on the earnings yield and, and forecasting future earnings, which is in a previous life uh, back in Brazil, this was something that I, that, that I did quite uh, uh, regularly. You're leaning on, I guess, sell side estimates, right? So how do, you, how do you think about that? Do you, do you try to exclude the highest and the lowest so that you're not, you know, you're, you're removing some of the outliers, you know, not to get too, too much into the weeds of the minutiae here, but I, I'd be curious to see how, how you go through that uh, uh, sort of sorting. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it at the index level, and of course, you're looking at the analyst estimates, and and usually they're almost always too high. Although what we found over the past uh, couple of quarters is that they've been uh, extremely, you know, too low. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so you have to kind of take that into account that that in normal times they're almost always optimistic, and so you kind of have to account for that, and and maybe say that the index is probably a little more expensive than, than what it looks like at first glance. And then, of course, you look at the sector composition and if you've got a bunch of technology stocks. I mean, in 2007 or two, I guess it was 2007, at a previous market peak, you know, the forward multiple looked reasonable. Was it 15 times earnings? But you also had 40% energy and financials making up the index. And so it was deceivingly reasonable because those were at peak earnings. You know, and in retrospect, uh, the market got to be pretty expensive within a year's time, you know, just based on the normal metrics. So, yeah, you're right. You have to take into account analyst optimism and also the implicit bets that you're making based on the weighting of the index. And so I'm always kind of looking at what the expectations are for for each sector. And and then that makes me a little more comfortable with with our positioning there. They do track the um, price to forward earnings, though, going back to the mid 1980s. So you can compare apples to apples, right? All of them are obviously yeah, going to be yeah. above or overly optimistic, but that's okay. Cause the bias is consistent, right? Or sure. No, that makes reasonably sense. consistent. And so, I mean, interestingly, of course, the price to forward earnings multiple right now is in the sort of 90th plus percentile relative to history back to the mid eighties. So even on that metric, it's pretty expensive, notwithstanding adjustments for, um, sector composition within within the index, which I think is an interesting point of view as right. well. Right. That's true. And the dispersion, I think, within the index is still pretty wide, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, JP Morgan puts out a pretty good uh, chart in their quarterly uh, guide that, that shows, you know, the gap between the high and the low. It's, it's pretty wide. And uh, so I think you could make the case that equal weighting, which I know is near and dear to Adam's heart, is probably a better way to approach that. If you're worried about market valuations, then equal weighting, which is an agnostic approach to this, you know, might be a better way to to reduce that risk um, going forward. And of course, equal weighting is just the naive expression of um, minimum variance, which um, you, um, I know you've, you, you helped to, to sculpt that paper, but yeah. Worth worth reading the um, portfolio optimization for efficient stock portfolios paper to dig more deeply into that concept. Sorry, Richard, go ahead. 
No, I was just uh, kind of curious, other than sort of the the vice in anti-ESG sort of thematics that uh, <laughs> uh, I think uh, Larry is quite interested in, what are some of the other themes, uh, whether sector or company specific, that you are currently seeing opportunities in and, and, and whether you layer in sort of a macro backdrop in that analysis? I mean, we're, we're talking about a reopening, but then there's this other new wave of the pandemic coming along, and that's putting a little bit of a question mark on the the uh, on the recovery. And a couple of, uh, I think it was uh, Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs came out uh, yesterday or today saying that uh, they're, they're, it's likely that U.S. economy has is peaking right now in Q2, and that there's a lot of headwinds uh, <clears throat> within the, the the full scope of the recovery. So, kind of just kind of curious within that context, what you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, I I would um, I, I think it depends on what we expect as as far as the future goes, and we've certainly put a lot of money into the economy. Um, uh, we know that it's not really absolute levels of inflation, but sudden changes or unexpected inflation that that spook investors. Uh, to me, that's a wild card. Uh, whether or not it's sustained is anybody's guess, and of course. We've had it so good for so long with with low dividend and capital gains tax rates. Even if uh, most equities are held in tax deferred accounts, I mean that still has a big impact. I think on investor psychology, and and uh, I won't uh, try to stir up anything with my my thoughts on a capital gains tax. But you know, uh, perspective matters. As Ed Clissold has of uh, Ned Davis has put out on Twitter that. Uh, context matters. So if you're doubling the top capital gains tax uh, rate from 20 to 43 or whatever it is, you know, that's a huge change and and really can cause some uh, disturbances uh, in the market as far as major holders of shares. So, you know, there are some wild cards out there. And, and I do think that outside of a few mm-hmm. industries, the market is probably pretty fairly valued. Um, I, whether it's excessively valued, I don't know. It, it kind of depends on on where things go from here, right? Uh, there are not as many opportunities as there were a few months ago. Uh, just about everything seems to have recovered fully. It's kind of funny to think of cruise lines, for example, as having higher enterprise values than they did before the pandemic, despite you know massive secondaries and basically moribund uh, fundamentals. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard pressed to to make the case that anything is is super uh, compelling. Um, but you know, I, I guess. Our perspective here in the states, we we seem to be rounding the corner a little bit from the pandemic. Although we'll we'll see. Hopefully, that's the case. It's still uh, burning pretty badly in other places around the world, and uh, you could make the case with India, for example, where where numbers are are disturbingly high. That you could have some supply chain disruption, you know, from that. So there are a lot of wild cards that are still out there, but investors broadly seem to be thinking that everything is pretty great. So, you know, whether or not they're whistling past the graveyard, I guess we'll see. Well, you looked I at think the, you'd uh, agree. Oh, go ahead. No, no. I go was ahead, wondering man. if you looked at the uranium sector at all. 
<laughs> the Fukushima sector. I mean, there's a sector that's out of freaking favor, but also has maybe had a bit of a turn. But any thoughts there? I, mean, I, um, I don't have any positioning with it, although I do. Re- I'm old enough to remember the last time that it was in a sustained bull market cycle around 2007. And uh, I saw some fortunes made and lost in a very short period of time. And And I do think, I mean, I don't know from a climate change perspective, if wind and solar and these sorts of uh, alternative energies can fully replace fossil fuels, if there's not also uh, an adoption of nuclear power. I I just don't see how that's possible. uh, Expecting people to accept a declining living standard based on lower energy usage without nuclear power. I, I don't see how that works. So yeah, the fundamentals seem to be in place for uranium, but I don't make I don't make the policies, so I, I don't know how that will how that will change. Although I I, I do think that um, you can make a very compelling case for it, just based on energy demands going forward and and what our realities are as far as how we get there. Not advice. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, does anyone have anyone else, anything else or should we let poor Larry get off to his weekend activities? I'm good. It's been great. All right. Yeah. Awesome. This is a lot of fun. I yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks, Lawrence. This has been fantastic, man. Um, we did have a comment. Someone was asking whether you have any pick and shovel companies you're watching, any best industry picks or anything like that um, that are under the radar. In case you want to leave anyone with something that that you have, but it's not investment advice, but is a thought. Exactly. Uh, you know, I I I probably have to spend more time on it, so I I, I will I will refrain from answering just because uh, I can't do it justice right now. My I need another cup of coffee <laughs> if I'm going to get my brain working. If that's fair, I don't mean to cop out on you. I just no, have no, to an abundance say. of prudence. That makes sense. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thanks, guys. Uh, Larry, I'm sure we'll have a chance to do this again sometime. And everyone have a great weekend. Yeah. We well, thanks, actually, guys. Larry, Appreciate where can it. people find you? Actually, if, oh, yeah. Good uh, call. They don't know. Oh, yeah. You can find me on Twitter. It's just uh, L Hamptel and uh, at L Hamptel. And my blog, which I should probably be writing more at, is at uh, fortunefinancialadvisors.com. All right. And for Cheers. everyone that is stuck with us till the end, like, share, subscribe. Mm. Write a comment, all that good stuff. Thanks, all. Roll Thanks, music, guys. Man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.